This is episode number 328 with Joanna Griffiths of The Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder Fam? Hope you are healthy, safe, you and your family are doing okay during this crazy time. My name is Nathan Chan. I'm the CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine and also the host of this show. Uh, So let's talk about today's guest. Her name is Joanna Griffiths, and she is the founder of a company called Nix. Now, she started that company with $20,000 and uh, in the last year turned over $50 million in annual revenue. And she sells one uh, pair of Nick's wear every single six seconds, uh, which is crazy if you think about it. Um, so what you're going to learn in this interview is pretty much like why she chose to take a chance on this business and how she, you know, worked out to solve this universal problem um, and how she turned out to be an accidental entrepreneur. She also talks about how she is going through the early days of building a wholesale business and the struggles that first-time entrepreneurs face, how she identified her target market, shaped her product accordingly, um, even, you know, everything that she's done around product development, launching, crowdfunding, and uh, yeah, how like she's brought this business to life. It's an incredible story, extremely fast growth. I really enjoyed this interview with Joanna. So that's it from me, guys. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes. Like, you know, we don't charge for this show. We... We interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation. We work so hard to share their stories with you to help you start or grow your business. And all we ask is, really, can you just share this with a couple of friends, anyone that you think will get value from it, and just please leave us a review. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump in the show. Joanna, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So, um... 
The first question I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how'd you get your job? <laughs> I had to make it for myself. <laughs> yeah, I see. So um, how'd you find yourself like doing the work you're doing today? Uh, was was Nix's first company you started? Yeah, Nix is my first company. So I, I founded the company um, a little over seven years ago. So I've been at this for a while. Uh, in my previous life, I worked in the media and entertainment industry. So I was a music publicist, publicist at Universal Music, um, worked in film and television, and ultimately went back to school to do an MBA with the thought process that I would someday run a media company. And uh, within the first, first week, really, of being at school, I was chatting with some classmates about an idea I had, um, which ended up being mixed. Uh, and so, um, really, you know, in the beginning, uh, Nix is an intimate brand for those, those who aren't aware. Um, and, uh, the first set of products that we started making, uh, were really great looking leak proof underwear. So not a sexy problem, but definitely like a universal problem. And, um, when I was at school in those first few weeks, just really became kind of super passionate about solving this problem and took every opportunity I could to really do research, interview people, make progress, and ultimately kind of pass the point of no return where it seemed like a bigger risk to not do it than to do it. And so past, um, I guess I'm an accidental entrepreneur in that regard. Hmm, interesting. So um, you talked about kind of it was a bigger risk not to do it. Why? I think I'm one of those people that um, really follows their heart and their passions. And I think I was so, I was so fixated on the concept and I was so passionate about it that if I didn't do it, I would have this constant risk in my life that I would be looking back and asking what if. And at the end of the day, when, you know, talking with family or talking with my, my now partner about it, the prospect of always wondering what would have happened and sort of carrying that with me for the rest of my life felt like a bigger risk to take than saying, okay, I'm going to give this a year. I'm going to see what happens. The worst thing that could happen is it goes nowhere, but then at least I'll know that I tried. Mm. Yeah. I love that attitude. That's a great attitude because I think oftentimes people, uh, they don't start or they don't, try or they 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 think they wish they wonder because they're scared of failure and they're scared of what other people would think um were you in a position where you had a lot of capital to uh you know get your first order how did you get funds to to make the placement for the first uh moq yeah, so I um, I ended up doing a business comp like business plan competition at my school and won that and so won the first like twenty thousand dollars to kind of start the business and I came back to Toronto which is where I'm based and um, worked part time for the first few months until really I felt like my time was the limiting factor where I was the person who was holding back decisions being made or progress being made. And with that $20,000, I actually got pretty far. I got like all the way through prototype development, you know, made, made a lot of progress. 
And then ultimately ended up doing a small round before launching and then doing an Indiegogo campaign. I sort of like launched Nix right at the peak of crowdfunding. So um, did an Indiegogo campaign. And I mean, to be honest with you, like the first, the first order that I did was probably one of the biggest mistakes I'd made in the company's history. <laughs> yes. I just had no idea what I was doing. Like the the minimums in underwear are really, really high. I think I bought, I don't know, 40,000 pairs of underwear or something. Oh, wow. And, you know, you, you don't get everything perfect out of the gate. I think any entrepreneur will, will say that it's progress over perfection. But when you have 40,000 units of underwear, <laughs> just kind of like burning a hole in your, um, in your back pocket, uh, I joke that like, I still feel like we have those early pairs kicking around because we, we obviously got like feedback and made improvements to the product and all these different things along the way. But I needed, I needed like a decent amount of money to buy that much underwear. So that was, so in the underwear space, 40,000 is the MOQ and you, did you sell that many? Did you move that? Like you moved them all? Um, eventually, but it took a while. Yeah. So, um, when, by the time you break down like styles and colors, yeah, it, it got, it adds up pretty quick. Okay. Interesting. And yeah, you sounds like you've got a really great story of kind of just working things out along the way. What, what about, you said you raised a, a very small seed round. Was that from friends and family? Yeah, it was predominantly friends and family, some alumni that went to my school. Um, so like really angel, angel investors at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, just for clarity for, for everyone watching, can uh, we kind of quickly fast forward today before we loop back just around the traction and kind of where is the company at today? Right. Can you share any notable figures, annual revenue, uh, you know, uh, units sold, uh, team size, anything at all, market share? Yeah. Give clarity. For sure. So last year we last year we passed 50 million in revenue and we're growing at about 50% year over year. So we sell a mixed item basically every six seconds, um, which is more, faster than I would have thought. <laughs> um, my team is 85 people uh, and we sell 100% online uh, with the exception of we recently started opening our own Nick's branded retail stores. So we have two of those at the moment with, well, the plan was to open more, but um, we haven't, that's been on pause since COVID. Um, so that's where we are now. I'd say like the first couple of years building next, um, I was really focused on the wholesale channels. So I spent three years like on the road at trade shows and different things like that. And um, in 2016, having done that for, for a few years, I made the decision to totally pivot the business and to move out of wholesale and the focus to selling online. So I pulled out of over 800 retail t- stores, basically started over and launched as a direct to consumer brand first. And so all of our growth has really been since I made that decision, we grew just under 4,000% in three years. And yeah, it was, it was like one of the, the bolder moves I think that I've made, but it was definitely the right one. I think when we're early founders or early entrepreneurs, there's this tendency or desire to feel like you have to say yes to everything and you never want to turn down an opportunity. And so um, at least for me, I found that I spread myself really thin and we never really got 
good at any one thing because we were, I was saying yes to so many different things. So for us, it was really, or for me, at least it was really an exercise and kind of starting to say no and focusing and, and really um, committing to getting, getting great at a couple things. And that's when we started to, to take off. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, that's a very, very common theme that if you, once you get a little bit of traction, if you really want to scale your company, you just need to do less and focus, which is crazy, which you can only learn through experience. Like people told yeah. me that early on and I was like, that sounds nuts. I don't <laughs> think so. That doesn't make any sense. Why would I say no to something? And then you slowly start to learn that it's not, when you say yes, it's at the detriment of something else. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a sign of, yeah, I guess, entrepreneurial maturity. Hey. <laughs> Yes, definitely. It takes a while. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's talk about kind of those early days because I uh, the, the early day stories are always interesting to me because, you know, if someone looks at everything you've accomplished now, that it, it would seem really out of sight. And a lot of people watching this, uh, you know, uh, might be looking to start a business or they might have recently launched something or they're working on an e-commerce product. Um, and you know, moving you moving one like one one next pair of underwear every three seconds, that's crazy, right? Fifty million annual revenue, obviously on track to do uh, nine figures very soon in the next few years. Um, and probably I assume maybe COVID has, has a little bit accelerated that. The e commerce space is booming. Um, so let's talk about those early days. So why did you decide to do an Indiegogo campaign? Uh, I have I've we've done an Indiegogo no. We did a Kickstarter, then Indiegogo. We, mm. we listed on Indiegogo afterwards um, as the extension. But, yeah, why did you decide to do that for this particular product? Because generally, yeah, generally it's more invention style. For sure. No, you're absolutely right. We were a bit of an outlier. So um, I started with Indiegogo. I did the opposite of you. And then later went to Kickstarter. And I guess, like, when I launched Nick's Crab Bunny, was just starting to kick off. I really didn't have any experience or background in apparel. And so going into making that first order, which was like huge, huge, as I mentioned, um, I felt like I couldn't mess it up. And so what I, what I viewed crowdfunding as enabling me to do was to get feedback before I committed to the order to like understand what customers would be looking for in terms of styles and sizing breakdown and silhouettes and, and whatnot. And, um, I learned a ton from that experience. I, I would have ordered not the right things without the the feedback and input from those first, I don't know, thousand customers or whatever it was. So, um, and then and then I would also say that it really ingrained this philosophy and approach that we've taken at, at Nix ever since, which is a true like community approach to building our company and our brand and not being afraid to ask customers what they're looking for and to use them as kind of like the, the inspiration for products. And so I was able to learn that early on through the crowdfunding process, but we were an outlier. Definitely. Um, it was just what you did at the time. Does that make sense? Like it was like yeah. peak hype peak, like how it was like, two, I feel like 2013, 2014, that was like the year that people did crowdfunding campaigns to launch their businesses and when the media still cared about it, they would still write about a, a crowdfunding campaign. Um, a lot has changed since then. 
interesting. Uh, so you launched on Indiegogo. That was that was the that's how you got your first one thousand customers. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's actually smart because they have an audience of buyers. That platform has an audience of buyers as opposed to running Facebook ads, which people try and do, or you know, do the PPC play, or build up a, a community on Instagram or said to influencers. You just went to a market where people are looking to buy. Yeah, exactly. It had a built-in audience and community. So that was really, really helpful. Although I will say that how we ended up getting into wholesale in the first place was I quickly discovered that it's it's still really hard in the early days to convince people to buy your product. Like you're kind of going one person at a time. And um, so through that campaign came with, up with the idea to, you know, if I was going to spend time and energy trying to get one person to buy, maybe I should try and get a department store to buy and so um, we pitched and convinced uh, the largest department store in Canada to, to place a pre-order through our campaign. And um, that kind of like put us on the map, I guess you could say, from a media perspective in terms of doing something different. Uh, so but then it, got- set me, it set me on a path that I was not expecting to go on, which was about a, about a three-year do- detour of, of selling wholesale. Yep, yep. So you got kind of hooked to the big PO orders, landing the whale clients or the whale orders, probably can I assume not making the best margin Horrible and having cash flow, cash flow issues. Terrible yep. for cash flow. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, yeah, n- not, not, not ideal. If you have limited um, access to funds, I would say. Yeah. Retail's, retail and wholesale is an interesting one. Um, I have no experience with it but yeah retail wasn't for you guys for for cash flow and and margin reasons um well wholesale actually ultimately what made me pull out of wholesale was um two things so we later went back and did another crowdfunding campaign a kickstarter campaign um and that was when we were expanding our products and getting into bras so i went back online and we sold more in 30 days than i did in the first three years of the business so we actually had a, a really successful campaign. We did about $1.7 million in pre-sales for wow. probably like the most unlikely product of all time. It was a bra. It was not a gadget. It was not like, it only appealed to a certain percentage of people on the platform, but it, it went really well. And so um, my eyes were kind of open to the fact that, wow, this is really like a product that people were interested in buying online. So that was part of it. The other piece was, um, you know, we're a very mission-focused company. Part of the reason why I was so passionate about starting Nix in the first place was because I really saw the opportunity to have a positive impact on, on women's lives. And what I found over the course of being in wholesale and building Nix was that we've, we've really been at the forefront at a, at a whole bunch of movements. So, um, you know, size inclusivity and body positivity to begin with. And, you know, from our early days, we always offered a pretty wide size range. And what I found was our, the retail partners just weren't ready for it. And so the more that we as a brand dug into storytelling and, and sort of um, more like purpose-driven marketing, there's such a huge disconnect between what we would say on our Instagram page as an example and the experience that a next customer would have at a, at a store where they would be turned away because they didn't carry their size or they would like have this really negative experience. So 
ultimately because of really a lack of brand alignment, we decided to, to cut off that main revenue channel and to try and do something different. Yeah, I see. So at, during that three years time period, did you have to let anyone go to restart? No, because we were so small. Like I was under five people until 2016. Like it was like tiny, tiny, tiny. So when you have like one person in operations and one person in marketing and like, there's no one to let go really. <laughs> because um, I will say that like, there was a, a moment when there was a natural trans sort of um, just transition within the company and our team where I started changing the way that I hired and instead of going for people who maybe had had a lot of wholesale experience and that came from the retail and apparel space really went for more entrepreneurial kind of startup growth minded people. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So how, like, I think it is smart um, that, and that is an often a trend if, if a brand does a, a Kickstarter or crowdfunding campaign and, and it gets funded and they have success, it's actually really smart to do it again. So we, we did a, we did a book. I don't have it with me. Oh yeah, I do. We did, we did this book. The interview's not about me, but we did this coffee table book. It's got like insights from some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our time. And one thing that I learned was a lot of people, um, if they have a successful campaign, we didn't do as well as you, we did it couple hundred thousand um but people often do it again and you when you go at it a second time you, you learn from your mistakes like yeah. that book we charge forty dollars shipping for it we we sold it for forty dollars and we charge forty dollars shipping for it so like you could imagine like how much better we could have done if we didn't just build shipping into the cost but but we didn't know like to, to the price but we didn't know anything like like you know yeah. that kind of naivety so yeah, I'd love to hear, like, what did you do the second time round that made it such a gangbuster? Oh, I still don't know if we did it that right. I think um, we had, like, we had our, we brought our own community to the platform. So I'd say that was a big thing. So when we launched the product, we had the first, like, few thousand people that were really excited to buy. And then, as you know, it's, like, all about the algorithm. So if you start getting great traction, then you all of a sudden become, like, a top pick or like one to watch, or you get in the email newsletter, or you're on the homepage. And so it sort of becomes this like, self building prophecy. I did a lot of work on the prep around PR pitching. So um, and we got really lucky. I used to work in PR before I started next, but like one of my hacks, I guess you could say is I'm like a huge fan of finding interns that work at publications that are writing. But, um, so maybe they've like written one or two articles, but like no, no normal PR agency would have their contact information or pitch them. So I did that. I found an intern at Mashable who I think had written like one or two articles and I pitched her on LinkedIn because I don't, I didn't even know her email. And she wrote a piece that got picked up because it was like, if Mashable at the time, like if Mashable wrote something, a whole bunch of places would pick it up. It got picked up by so many places. And so that was like a huge breakthrough for us really putting polish into the video and like all of the photography assets was really important. And then I always used to, I mean, I haven't done this in so long, but like you, I feel like I used to be more of an expert, but you set like, you set your target really low 
you you create early bird pricing deals where if you sell through the early bird, you automatically hit your target. So you like try and crush your target in the first 24 hours. And um, then the thing kind of has like momentum in a life of its own. Yeah, but I yeah. still did stuff so terribly. And this was like before the ecosystem had really been developed. Like we, we offered all of our, we offered our bras and all the selection of all of our underwear. And in some cases people would buy 15 or 16 items. So we had millions of permutations in terms of what was possible for people to order. And it took oh, us, wow. it took eight months to fulfill because it was so complicated. Like, so Kickstarter is great if you're like, hey, do you want this coffee table book or do you want two coffee table books or do you want the book and, the, and a T-shirt? You know what I mean? It's not yeah. it's not designed for what 15 items you want and what sizes, colors, styles, combination. So I, I think I still have like PTSD after that campaign. It, it nearly broke me, honestly. Wow. That's crazy. So what happened after that? That's when you guys really hit the ground running, right? You probably would have had to go on a bit of a hiring spree. Yeah, we, we took it day by day. Like, I mean, um, we fulfilled all of our orders. We like switched over our like change fulfillment centers because the people that took eight months were not the people we could work with going forward. Um, I, and we, um, yeah, we, we, we relaunched as, as online first in September of 2016 and then just grew like very quickly after that, figured out online marketing, figured out like all of the pieces and um, yeah. Yeah. What was the first channel that you guys started? Was it influencers with, with Instagram or was it Facebook ads? Or it, was what, fa- what? it was Facebook ads for us. I think like coming from the crowdfunding world and really getting great at those like problem solutions videos. It was prime for like 2016, 2017 marketing on Facebook. Um, So uh, that was, that was how we started. And then it sort of seems like every 10 million in incremental revenue that you do, you need to find a new channel to break through on. And so it's just consistently finding new channels as you grow. So what was the next channel? Um, started finding some great brand ambassadors, like built out an ambassador program so that worked really well for us. Smart. Started doing better at PR. Really good customer service and work, that way word of mouth picked up and repeat pit rates picked up. Um, and then I'd say more recently, it was, it's in TV marketing, like TV advertising. TV advertising, that works? Yeah. Totally. We work with an amazing partner that's called Tatari. And um, it's actually a company that's founded by the, the, the guy who started Shazam. Do you know that platform? Yeah, well, of course, yeah. Um, so they sync up with your Google Analytics and basically you get a cost per visit and a cost per acquisition of every single TV spot that you air. And I'm talking like thousands of them. And then you can refocus and reallocate your dollars based on the shows, the time slots, the like day of the week that are performing the best. And so it takes like the blind guesswork out of TV marketing and lets you do it in a much more 
performance kind of programmatic way. And so, yeah, it's very cool. It's very cool. Yeah. So you would happily spend dollars there because you can measurably acquire customers at scale. Absolutely. I could like watch, I don't, maybe I'm watching CNN and I see that one of our ads come on and then within a few minutes, I'll be able to see just exactly how many people made a purchase from seeing that ad. Um, How do they track that? Within Google Analytics. So they look for the spikes, the traffic visit spikes, and then they monitor those people who come in, like they monitor on the back end, those people who come and visit this site. And then they monitor for 30 days trailing to see if they come back and make a purchase. So they look for the spike and they attribute that spike to the particular commercials. Yeah. And so every every few seconds, they're resetting the baseline for your traffic. So if you like basically what could happen before is you could have a spot that airs on, I don't know, some small network that was super cheap. And at the same time, you could have a spot that airs on Good Morning America, right? Like one of the most expensive programs. And let's say you saw a spike in sales. In the old days, you'd probably think like, oh, it must have been Good Morning America. But now actually what they can do on their end is they can break it down and say, you know what? Actually, it was the like cheaper small site that brought this much revenue and you had this CPA and the Good Morning America spot, even though it aired within this five seconds of that spot, actually wasn't the driver of it. And so it, it's the only way I got comfortable with TV because I think having bootstrapped scrappy founder for so long I, I've never, I was never really comfortable with the prospect of anything that involved a really big financial commitment where I had no idea what the outcome was going to be. Um, yeah, yeah, it felt really risky. So, um, so this was the way that we got comfortable with it. Around the TV ads and the creative itself, can you guys use just creative that's worked on Facebook and YouTube? Or you have to go out and shoot custom stuff? Is that expensive? Like how much exactly? Yeah, you have to get agencies involved, right? Well, no. So, so like one of the first things that I did when we transitioned next to be ecom first is we we built our own creative shop, basically. So, my husband was a creative director at a, at an ad agency, and he left his job and came in house. And so, we are like very, very self sufficient when it comes to everything at Nix. Like we don't really work with a lot of agency partners. Um, we do mostly everything in-house. So when it comes to TV creative, we, we, we just actually filmed our third, our third TV commercial last yesterday. I, should, I said last night because it ended so late. Um, so typically what we do is we come up with the concepts in-house and then um, we have a, a freelance producer production company that we work with and we pick the directors and we sort of build it ourselves. It doesn't have to be that expensive. It just has to be creative that kind of breaks through. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. That's really smart. Um, a lot of fast growing direct to consumer e-com brands, they do creative in-house like, cause that's the game. So you guys must be pretty big spenders on Facebook, YouTube, just, just all PPC, right? We spend any cinema amount, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's all about the creative. Like, that's a big part of it, creative and copy. Yeah, and, and, like, any time that I've tried to work with, with agency partners on something like creative, like, you spend so much time bringing people up to speed that 
and sharing the context of like what's going on. So what we've found is like, it's all about fast iteration, testing and learning, getting better, like, and keeping everything in house just means that that feedback loop is so much, is so much faster and more effective. Yeah. And I guess you have people thinking about your brand all day, every day. And like you guys are focused on the mission and, and like, you know, the customers and you're speaking to the customers and you're looking at what people are saying and you're looking Constantly. yeah, what's working. Yeah. Yeah. Constantly. Yeah, exactly. We, we live and breathe it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so sounds like, uh, like I'm curious, how big is your media buying team? Um, so we have about seven people on that team that do everything paid. Yep. And that does not include the creative team. Not including our creative team. Okay. So I assume you'd have like a, a lead media buyer, like head of customer acquisition, and then one person for each channel. Is that how you've broken it down? So Yeah. I we we have a couple people that sit on that manage like Facebook and Instagram one person that manages more like new channels, so things like Pinterest or YouTube, like where we're experimenting. I like search SEM um, that does most of our Google stuff, uh, TV person. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of split in that way. Yeah, so it's broke down by mainly channel. Mainly by channel. Yeah, exactly. And did you find it hard? Because a lot of something that I do hear from some founders uh, in more in the earlier stage, they have this kind of apprehension to move away from an agency and bring media buying internally because uh, they say like, well, if this person was so good, they just have their own agency or they do it for themselves. Did you find it difficult to find and build a great media buying team? What would you, what, what experience could you share there? Yeah. So um, I've, I've probably taken the opposite approach. I found someone really early I read like a newspaper article and they, they, their name came up and they stuck out to me. So I made a cold call, like literally reached out to this person and he had such a sketchy website. I can't even tell you. Like it was, I was like, I can't believe I'm calling this person when I'm going to give it a shot. And so, um, he helped us in the early days with our paid Facebook marketing, but instead of hiring him to run the account, I hired him to train people on my team. So from the very beginning, we've taken the approach of training internally versus using agencies. I've tried to use agencies like once or twice, usually like if a key person leaves and you're kind of stuck. And it has been the biggest disaster of all time. Like in wow. 2018, we, I switched agencies for, for one month and they lost $600,000 in a single month. In revenue. No, like, like negative. Oh, wow. They spent so much money that the company ended up losing that much in a single month. And at the time we were a profitable company. So that was like a huge loss for us. Wow. But no agency I've worked with has cared to the level or extent that we've cared. And so we've always taken this approach and especially, you know, I'm based, my company's based in Toronto. There aren't a ton of like e-commerce brands or even necessarily like retail brands that are marketing on these channels. So there never was like a huge talent pool that I could go and like poach someone from. So we've taken this, this approach of training, really investing in the people that are on our teams. And now like our, you know, we, we spend a lot of time with the, 
the folks at, at Facebook in Canada and they would argue that like we have the best performance team in the whole country. And it's like, yeah, wow. just hiring smart people. That's, that's how we've done it. It's certainly not for everybody, but um, I don't love being beholden to agency partners. Yeah, no, look, I think that's the way to go. That seems like a common thread among speaking to founders. Um, and yeah, probably, yeah, look, just training within, building the building so that that unique system, process, machine of how you guys do things when it comes to media buying and performance. And I find it interesting how you say performance um, because there's a big difference between a performance marketer and someone that's not. Yeah. But yeah like like just building that internally and having that internal ip that means you can train people up internally and you can bring on juniors and you can you know kind of they can grow with the company so yeah they can grow with your growth and spend because um sometimes it could be difficult to find someone that's spending you know five six or even seven figures a month then to go to a company that's that's building their pvc or performance program from zero yeah it's not it's not exciting right so yeah. you can find juniors train them up that's really smart yeah no it's worked it's worked really well for us um and you know also i'd say like the more that you spend the agency fees just become like so high because it's based off of oftentimes the percentage of spend i find the incentives are wrong like they make more money when they spend more money instead of like do you know what I mean? Like, I, I just, I don't, I don't really get the alignment to be honest. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you guys are obviously really strong on PPC. You've got an in-house creative team, which is awesome. So I assume you have a studio and you you guys are just creating every day, right? Creating content every day. Yeah. Yeah. We shoot a lot of stuff in our office. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then what about the product side of the business? So it sounds like um, the bras have, have really kicked off for you guys. Are they more your flagship product? Have you created any other flagship products that have gone gangbusters or what, what, how do you, how do you work on product innovation? How do you know when to create another SKU or a flagship product? Because yeah, you can have too many sometimes. That's a, that's an interesting balance. Yeah. So we're really lucky to be in a category like intimates where there's just been so little innovation that, and people wear it every day. So there's like a whole plethora of products that we've been able to kind of make our way through and, and, and innovate. Um, from a product standpoint, I'd say like, we try to hold ourselves to a high standard. So I don't consider us a fashion company. Like we, really only bring something to market if we feel like we're offering something new or different and that then helps us where we're not competing on price necessarily as much and like if people love the product then they know that we're the place to get it from so we've expanded a lot as a brand we, we now we sell swimwear we sell loungewear we sell like amazing sports bras we do a lot in the wireless bra category um and then our continuing with that that first product that we made the leak proof underwear product still does like very very well for us so um, our sales are pretty like evenly distributed amongst a, a few different categories now. But when do we launch new products? It all goes back to that Indiegogo theme of listening to customers. So we get a lot, a lot of customer feedback. We use our customers as our wear testers. Like even if you see any of our packaging, which obviously no one can see, 
but we always say like who the customer was that it was inspired by and a little bit about their story. So, um, so cool. yeah, so we monitor all of the requests that come in and then basically like work on a pipeline to kind of, uh, follow the lead of where people want to see us go next. See, um, how do you field all the customer insights, feedback? Do you have a place for it? Do you have a tool or is it just in a spreadsheet? Do you, do you align your customer support team, your social team, even your PPC team on, on the comments? Like how, what do you do there to organize that? Everywhere. It is everywhere. So we switched, um, we switched platforms recently uh, for customer service. So we have a, a great platform now that makes it quite easy to kind of, ch- where we can tag like every single ticket that comes in and tag it based on like what the feedback is, what the request is. So we can pull like aggregate themes at the is end. Georgius, Georgius, that one? No, but it's similar to that. We use customer, it's called. It can pick up on sentiment of emails as well when someone writes in. So you can get a sense of like if the customer's happy or if they're like neutral or angry or dissatisfied and it's a pretty, pretty cool platform. Um, and what we do is every month we, we have, um, a customer centric meeting where we pull in like everything that's come in through email, through live chat, through phone support. We pull all of the notes from like store notes, uh, all of the themes through social media monitoring, <laughs> everything that comes in through NPS, everything that comes in through product reviews, and we like holistically across all of those different um, channels, identify what the themes are and where the opportunities are. So, oh, wow. yeah, it's, it's, it's not perfect, but like every brand is inundated with customer feedback and information. And then I will say that like, it's very traditional or old school, but I still read every comment that goes on our Instagram page and that helps too. Still. Yeah. Every post we put up, I read through every single comment. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you would say, Joanna, you're more of a product and marketing person. Yeah. I love product and I love brand marketing. Those are the two areas that I excel. Okay. Um, so how have you complemented kind of, you're probably not that strong on operations or finance. You probably would have, you would have had to do it in the early days, but I assume now you have 80 people you've, you've supplemented that. Yeah. Yeah. It's taken us, Oh, it took me a really long time to find the right team. Um, and I'm sure that's a common theme as well. Like, especially when you're getting started and every day you're building a company that's bigger than the day before, if it's not your industry, like this wasn't my industry, you don't really know what to look for. Like you don't honestly know like what great looks like or what the next move is. So it took me a while to find the right people, but now we have an amazing team and one of the best hires or like, you know, you talk about transformational hires and you don't need a lot of them, but our, our COO, we relocated from LA just over a year ago and he has like totally transformed our organization and our company and, um, has, has really helped on the, the operations, scaling supply chain, infrastructure, customer support, retail, like all of the, all of the offsets of things. Yep. 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 So he's an integrator. He is. Yes. <laughs> okay. Awesome. I am um, not. That sounds like, a, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a dream hire. So, um, tell, let's talk about that because, 
you know, oftentimes um, when it comes to growing a company, I, I believe uh, that it is the people um, that that grow and scale a company. Um, but oftentimes people are looking for the hacks. They would much rather read or watch a video on, you know, how this person's spending a million dollars a month in Facebook ads profitably versus this is this is this is the best, like, you know, the number one way to find transformational hires. What do you think is going to get more clicks, right? What do you think is going to get yeah. more views? What do you think people are going to care about? But at the end of the day, if you can build an exceptional team that can change the game of your business, we talked about that concept of transformational hires. I'm curious, what is like, how did you find that person in LA? Did you use a recruiter? Did you use a recruiter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used an executive headhunter who helped with the role. And I spent a lot of time sort of figuring out what it was that I needed and, and where things were missing. Um, and it's so hard in fast growing companies to get this right, because you'll often find that there are people who have amazing experience, but they're not builders and they don't want to build. Like they, they, they are used to having a lot of support and a lot of systems. And so they can't necessarily roll up their sleeves. And I've, I've made those hires a whole bunch of times along the way. And you blink and there's like their team has quadrupled and like the output is the exact same and you like you have no idea what's going on. So um, I worked with an executive recruiter on this one and it was, it, I feel like we found like a diamond in the rough. Like we found our person. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And what did you look for? Because recruiters obviously are incentivized to find the right, well, to find anyone that you want to hire because that's how they, you know, get compensated. Um, what did you look for and what does success look like for any role within your organization? T- talk to me around the type of person, their traits, not just can they do the job, but yeah, what, what are you looking for? Yeah. So for that particular search, I did what's called a retained search. So actually the recruiter makes the money, whether they find you someone or they don't. Um, which is a terrifying concept, like very, very scary. Um, and I think finding, I think it starts with finding the right recruiter. So finding someone who shares similar values to you, who you really feel like understands the kind of person that's going to work well with you and who has amazing references and a great track record. So put a lot of emphasis on finding the recruiter. I think one of the best things that we've done at Nix is being a mission led company that has enabled us to attract talent and people where we never would have been able to before. Like they are drawn to Nix because they love what the company stands for and they're willing to take a risk or make a move or, you know, to do that because they want to be a part of it. And that I think people really underestimate like how important that is to, to bring, like have clear values, know what you stand for, have a reason to exist in the world that isn't just about making money um, because it'll, it'll help you attract far greater people. And it also will help you know really quickly if you align on what's important, you know what I mean? Like, and then what do I look for? Um, Good, kind people first and foremost. So like low, low ego, like high empathy, optimistic, like really lots of accountability and people who want to build, like who, when 
the to-do list is done, they're like, what can I do now? Like they raise hungry. They're hungry. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think like once you get a few of them, right, then you start, they typically like the same sort of thing and you, you start to attract more and more. I was talking about this earlier with someone, but this concept that like bees hire seeds. Do you ever talk about that on this? this yeah, we're. Yeah, I haven't. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. Look, I I have spoken to this concept a few times. I think so. But A players want to work with other pl- A players. That's it. That's exactly it. Exactly. Um, and so you you hold yourself to kind of like a higher standard and you get on like a little, honestly, like if, if you have products that people like and you get the right people, you get on this flywheel that is like so much more exciting than how to, you know, how to make a million dollars on Facebook. And I think that you can get it from my experience because I like really, really hacked my way to our first 30 million in sales. Like we were a really small team and like, you know, did not have the right infrastructure. That's as far as you can go. But if you want to build like a hundred million dollar company, billion dollar brand, you absolutely need the right people and you need a super strong vision and mission. Yeah. And you need a really high performance team and culture. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Okay. Well, look, um, Joanna, this is a great conversation. I think we've covered a lot of ground. I know, um, uh, we have to work towards wrapping up, but um, was there just a couple last questions? Was there anything uh, that you would like to share with our audience of early stage startup founders, uh, people that are either working on something, looking to start something, or they've been running it for a while? Could be e-com, could be SaaS, could be service-based lead gen. Um, yeah, any any parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share? And then lastly, uh, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work? Parting words of wisdom. Um, I think just that no one knows what they're doing. So (laughs) if you feel like you don't know what you're doing, that's totally normal. Nobody really knows what they're doing, especially in today's landscape where the world is literally changing around us every single second. There is no playbook. There is no shortcut. Nobody knows what they're doing. And like it's just about every day figuring it out a little bit more than you did the day before. So um, those are my parting words of wisdom. <laughs> I awesome, love it. And then where can you find me? Um, on I'm mainly on Instagram and my handle is Joanna Nix. Awesome. And uh, Nix.com? Nix.com is our website. And then our um, social media handles are all Nixware. So K-N-I-X-W-E-A-R. Awesome. Well, look, um, thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, this is a fantastic conversation and congratulations on all your success. And uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Great chatting with you, Nathan. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. 
So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.